Live from Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to try to worship God in spirit and in truth. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Let's go right into a moment from the Word. Boom! Boom! And I heard, (laughs) as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. Excuse me, I know you know that the focus of the ministry has evolved over time as I have evolved. Some would say as I've de-evolved, but uh, I would disagree with that. I think I have been able to, by God's grace, increase in love and mercy. So I think that's evolution. Uh, We started off hitting the LDS hard, and then we hit the evangelical world hard, And then we realized that hitting things hard is not always the best approach. So we started looking at the heart of the matter, faith in God through Jesus, loving God and man, dying to doctrine and divisions and differences, viewing the Bible contextually, challenging orthodoxy, letting people think how they're going to think and freely accept that. And in essence, and in the end, we promote what we call subjective Christianity, or the idea that Christianity is subjectively believed, embraced, and lived, and that every, every, every individual uh, has a responsibility before God for what they choose to accept and what they choose to reject and how they choose to love. Uh, we've stepped back and away from dogma uh, uh, to reign over these conversations and have tried to let the spirit of love reign in truth. So we fail sometimes, I fail, but because of this segment of the show uh, is called From the Word, I just took the book of Romans and I put, pulled out four of my favorite instances that I believe support subjective Christianity. Next week, I'm going to take 1 Corinthians and do the same, and then 2 Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians, and we'll just go through it. And so here they are. I'm just going to read them to you. Paul says in Romans 8:33 through 34, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Another passage, Romans 12, 3, says, For I say 
through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think soberly according to as God have dealt to every man the measure of faith for as we have many members in one body and all members have not the same office so we being many are one body in Christ and every one members one of another having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. So he talks about differing uh, levels or quantities of faith. Then he talks about different types of quantities of grace. He talks about different types of gifts that we have. Whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith. Or ministry, let us wait on our ministering. Or he that teacheth on teaching. Or he that exhorteth on exhortation. He that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. He that ruleth, let him do it with diligence. He that shows mercy with cheerfulness. And then he adds, let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love in honor preferring one another. I like that. I think those are great passages. One more set. It's a little lengthy, but I think it's worth it. You ready? Romans 14. Paul writes, To him that is weak in the faith, receive, but not to doubtful disputations. Someone's weak in the faith and they say, Well, I'm not so sure I believe in this or that. You don't have to receive them to doubtful dis disputations. Leave them alone. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eats only herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God has received him. Now he's talking about meats here sacrificed to idols and different things, but also talking about just meat. We could be talking about drinking beer, we could talk about drinking scotch, we could talk about smoking cigarettes. We could talk about all kinds of things. And Paul says, look, if someone chooses to do that or someone chooses not to do that, tell each of them to get off each other's back. God has received those people. Who art thou, verse 4, that judges another man's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. Do you get that? It's not in our strength. It's not in our weakness. God makes us stand, not ourselves. He goes on talking about Sabbath day. Verse 5, one man esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. That's me. Every day is alike to me. I don't have a Sunday or a Saturday. I don't have a Monday. I frankly don't have a Christmas or an Easter. Every day is the same to me. That's how I think of life. I'm, I pretty much have ever since I got over my own birthday parties. Uh, so, I mean, it's just, that's just how I see it. Now, other people, they love days. They, they, some people love to have a special day of the week for worship. Fine. It's okay. Some people love to have their celebrations. It's okay. So he says, let every man be fully persuaded where? In his own mind. In his own mind. Not everybody else's mind. He says, he that regards the day, regards it unto the Lord. He that regards not the day, to the Lord he does not regard it. He that eats, he eats to the Lord. He that gives thanks to God, he that eateth not, to the Lord he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. For none of us lives to ourselves, and man, no man dies to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live therefore or die, we are the Lord's. 
For to this sin Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and living. Why, but he asked in verse 10, but why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost that set at not thy brother? Meaning, set him aside as if that brother is not worthy of association. Why do you set at not someone who is a brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. That's Christian subjectivity, my friends. That's all it is right there. We will give our own account. I am so grateful for that. I'm not going to be able to look at this guy or that guy and say, well, they taught me this or I did. You know, it's just going to be, I'm, I'm, I'm the one guilty or innocent. Whatever it was, I can accept that. And so we make our choices instead of passing the buck to someone else. There, let us therefore, verse 13, judge, excuse me, let us not therefore judge one another any more, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. So he, he says, now listen, if you have something, you like to drink whiskey, and you go out to dinner with a guy who is an alcoholic, don't drink the whiskey in front of him. That's not the loving thing to do because you're stumbling him. Why? He's going to want to drink it too. So he says, that's brotherly love. He says, I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him that esteems anything to be unclean, to him it's unclean. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. If you're doing something in front of somebody and it grieves them, you are not being loving toward that person. Destroy not him with your meat for whom Christ died. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. What he's talking about, don't let your liberty be evil spoken of. He calls that our good. The liberty that we have, he is referring to that as our good, but don't let it be evil spoken of. For the kingdom of God is not in meat and drink, but righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Spirit. For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Let us therefore follow after these things which make for peace. Look at that. This is such a beautiful uh, uh, chapter. And things wherewith one may edify another. Edify. For meat destroys not the work of God. All things are indeed pure, but it is evil for that man who eats with offense. It is neither good to eat flesh nor drink wine nor anything whereby thy brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. That's when it becomes something that's uh, not loving. Okay? Otherwise, you're free. Okay? Listen how he wraps it up. Do you have faith? Have it to thyself before God. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in that thing which he allows. And he that doubteth is damned if he eat, because if he, if he eateth not of faith, excuse me, and he that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eats not from faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin, he ends it with. So you see, that's how it is subjective. We have our own personalities, our own degrees of what we allow and don't allow. If somebody doesn't allow drink, I support them completely. They are my brother. If someone allows drink, I support them completely. They are my brother. 
We don't need to judge. We don't need to separate company. People who are Christ are Christ. That's it. The gist of these passages are one and the same. Let God, through His Spirit, lead and guide those who are His. I mean, let's admit it. We believe what we want to believe, no matter what anyone says. Every one of us, if we sat down and picked a bunch of different gospel topics, we would all, if we really honestly didn't care what other people thought, would probably come up with different definitions and thoughts about everything, almost. So why don't we just admit to that? We're going to die alone. We were born alone. We're going to God alone. You're going to give your report alone to him. So let's celebrate the fact that God so loved the world, he sent his son to save us and give everybody the benefit of the doubt and what they're doing. And let's back the fetch up on fetch. I haven't used that word in a long time on all the rest of the stuff. Right. And with that, let's take a minute for a little reminder from Cassidy and a spot for you to consider. Because Christian laws are written on the hearts of believers. And believers are independently under the influence of God through the Holy Spirit. And because all beliefs are in the end between God and the individual, Christianity is entirely subjective, which leaves believers with the freedom to share Jesus and to love. I, I think in many cases, pastors today want people to believe that they need them, that they need them to be the ones to govern and, and over-shepherd their life and sit down on matters of everything from, you know, how much food you're storing to what you do on Sundays to what version of the Bible you're reading, and it's bull. Uh, you know, you have your relationship with God. You go to church, you, you hear a pastor teach, that's the pastor's job, teach the word, but the rest of it, it's between you and him. And with that, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we uh, thank you for life. We always pause to recognize you and probably not enough because we do see your hand in all things. And without you, we do know that our efforts and our walk are insufficient of what you could accomplish and what you can do through us. And so we just pray that you'll help us tonight. We pray for those who are seeking, those who feel lost or disjointed or alienated from you. We pray that somehow we'll be able to say the things that will encourage them. And we pray that you will forgive me for the things I say wrong. We're grateful for our staff and our volunteers and people who are around the ministry. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to continue on where we left off last week. And that was when we introduced Erasmus and his contributions to the King James Bible due to his amazing knowledge of Latin and Greek. And, uh, and his translations therefrom. Erasmus wrote a number of other books in addition to his translation of the Latin Vulgate and the Greek manuscripts, which later were used to give us the King James Bible. By 1530, the writings of Erasmus accounted somewhere between 10 to 20% of all book sales in Europe. And some of the things that are credited to him are the adage, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man, one man is king. That was Erasmus. And also Pandora's box was penned and articulated by Erasmus, not the Greeks even. So in the Christian era, he wrote a book called Hand Area, the Christian Area. He wrote a thing called Handbook 
of the Christian Soldier, 1503. And it was translated years later into English by a very young William Tyndale, who we're going to discuss next week. In this little book, Erasmus outlines views of the normal Christian life, a subject that he was greatly impassioned about. Now listen. To this man of great letters and learning, to this man whose translation of the Greek manuscripts were used to compose the King James Bible, we learn that his greatest complaint against Christianity, as it was practiced in his day, was what he called formalism of the faith, which he described as people going through the motions of tradition without understanding their basis of those traditions in Christ. That's an amazing insight from a guy who was a faithful Catholic. To Erasmus, formalism has the ability to teach the soul about God, but it also could quench the spirit that seeks to thrive. His assessments were dead on when it came to the dangers of formalism and monasticism, which was popular in Catholicism then, uh, saint worship. He said, come on, you know, war, the spirit of classes in, within the church. He said, this has got to go, and the foibles of Christian society. In my estimation, Erasmus saw clearly and discerned correctly the very same issues we still talk about today. He was so far ahead of his time, 1503. In another book, which admittedly bordered on satire, he was a great satirist, a huge wit. Uh, he extolled the reading of Scripture as, and he des described it this way, this is not satire, vital because of the power to transform and motivate people to love. That's how Erasmus understood the value of the Bible, that it has the power to motivate people to love. He summarized his view as saying that the new, quote, the New Testament is the law of Christ, people are called to obey, and Christ is the example people are called to imitate, end quote. That's from Erasmus. He also labored greatly, greatly in the works of the early church fathers, Jerome, Hilary, St. Augustine, and among the Greek writers, Origen, Irenaeus, and Chrysostom. Uh, he also wrote other satirical works. There was a guy named Niccolo Machiavelli. I read his book, The Prince, years ago, and Erasmus said, you know, Machiavelli says the best way to govern nations is through fear. Erasmus said, I'm going to write a satirical book that counters the prince, and I'm going to write one that says the best way to govern nations is through love. Amidst all of this, there was constant pressure on Erasmus and others to move from Catholicism over to Luther. Okay? And remember, Erasmus was committed to Catholicism, but only to its virtues. He had no problem assassinating the things that had gone wrong in Catholicism. But he did say, I'm going to be loyal to the church. On these grounds, he has my greatest respect because he didn't let zealotry blind him to the good that Roman Catholicism produced in people. He merely said, I can point out the bad and still stay in the game. As stated last week, the work of Erasmus and his New Testament help fan the flames of one Martin Luther, which in his reformational activities began the year after Erasmus published the New Testament from the Greek. Okay, so Luther gets a hold of Erasmus's 
translation of the New Testament from the Greek, the very first Greek translation, ahead of the Complutensian polyglot, and he says, listen, here it is, and Luther gets a hold of it, and that changes Luther and how he sees things. As we're well aware, the issues that separated Catholicism and Luther's nascent Protestantism produced a tremendous amount of rancor between these two sides. And before long, there was such pressure for people to choose a side. Where do you stand? Are you a Catholic? Are you going to protest against the Catholics? At the height of his literary career, Erasmus was called to make a choice. That's not his nature. His approach was to not care about sides, but instead critique and openly criticize whatever he believed was unsupported by Scripture, of which he was a master of, and the early church fathers, what they said and did, he didn't care who said it, what was said by who, Luther, the Catholics, anybody, if it was off according to what Scripture was saying, he would call them out on it. Now, I admire this too and have never understood the all-or-nothing hatred that comes, even as a Latter-day Saint. I wrote the book Born Again Mormon. And, and people said, you can't be a born-again Mormon. I said, you know, there's good things about the Mormon church. Don't say there's anything good about the Mormon. Let's, come on, let's just get real here. There are good things and there are bad things in every religion, including campus. We, there, we're, we're just humans. And so there's a lot of doctrinal craziness in Mormonism. We point that out. But it doesn't mean everything they do is evil. So that's the problem with political parties. I mean, modern political parties, these two or three, that's the problem with PC owners versus Apple computer owners. And it's the problem with Christian denominationalism. Sides. We all have to take our sides, right? So in all Erasmus's criticism of Catholicism's clerical follies and abuses, he always maintained to his death, he's not attacking men. He's not attacking the good that the institution does. He just wanted to point out the things that were bad, and he remained in that fight. In my estimation, he, above all other church reformers, embodied the Spirit of Christ. He said, the Spirit of Christ is going to guide my decisions on how I live and act, not the Spirit of man. Additionally, he retained his intellectual integrity because he didn't build a following that could follow him. How do we know that? Because in the 500 people he communicated with through letters, he only wrote in the scholarly languages, Latin and Greek. And so by doing that, he exempted the, the, the people who didn't understand those languages from becoming his fans and following his influence. He wanted to remain someone who influenced the thinkers and movers and shakers of the church. So I mention all this to validate his oppositional stance to Luther and, and Luther's popularity that appealed to revolution rather than reconciliation. You see, in history, when revolutionaries win, those who sought more peaceful means are almost always forgotten. Erasmus is one of them. We always hear of Luther, but you never hear of Erasmus today because he was the loser in this thing. So enter Martin Luther. Erasmus noticed Luther's criticism of the Catholic Church. At the onset, he described Luther as, quote, a mighty trumpet of gospel truth. So he supported him. 
while agreeing, quote, it is clear that many of the reforms for which Luther calls are urgently needed. So he agreed, Luther is right on these indulgences and this other stuff that the Catholics are so guilty of. In turn, Luther spoke admiringly of uh, Erasmus' superior learning. And, uh, but like any person seeking to overthrow, Luther wanted more from Erasmus than just his intellect. Luther wanted Erasmus's allegiance. He wanted him to side with Luther. In their early correspondence, Luther expressed boundless admiration, but he continued to urge Erasmus, come over to this side, come over to this side. Why? Why couldn't Luther have just allowed or agreed with Erasmus to remain in the other camp? Uh, did Luther have to have complete allegiance from everybody to his vision in order to accept them? Could he see the value of Erasmus as an allied force behind the scenes? Or did he really need to pick sides? Naturally, Erasmus declined to commit to Luther and argued that he would, if he did it, it would endanger his position as a pure scholar who he believed that was his way of influencing people's lives. In other words, it was only as an independent scholar that Erasmus could hope to influence reform within the religion, not as one who formed or joined sides. Unfortunately, when Erasmus hesitated, in supporting Luther by leaving Catholicism and joining that, the straightforward type Luther got angry and he claimed Erasmus was avoiding his responsibility, suggesting it was due to cowardice. Now we start to get into name calling. This is what happens with the zealots when you don't do it their way. The name calling happens. I've done it myself. I've been a zealot and I understand the mindset behind it. This was the first division between Erasmus and Luther, and it was founded on the fact that Erasmus refused to join Team Luther, and it's a fact that in retrospect, this accentuates our point today. We do not need to divide. Now, we hail the Protestant Reformation as this glorious thing, but if we were living through it, we might not do that. If we were actually there and the millions of people who died at the hands of that bloodshed, we might not think it was so glorious. Today we spout Sola Scriptura and the things from the Protestant Reformation as they are just completely liberating, but have they truly, in the spirit of everything, done it the way Christ would have done it? I don't know. Any hesitancy on the part of Erasmus didn't come from a lack of courage or a lack of conviction, but rather from concern over what he said was mounting disorder and violence the reformed movement was creating, remember, from people who were commanded to love and serve God in Jesus' name. Now let me start giving you some quotes. In a letter to Protestant reformer Philip Melanchthon, Erasmus wrote the following in 1524, quote, I know nothing of your church. At the very least, it contains people who will, I fear, overturn the whole system and drive the princes into using force to restrain good men and bad alike. The gospel, the word of God, faith, Christ, and Holy Spirit, these words are always on their lips. Look at their lives and they speak quite a different language, end quote. What Erasmus was saying is, 
Boy, everybody run, running around here and claiming, you know, sola scriptura, sola fide, sola grazie. They are just full of faith and Holy Spirit and saying it and saying it. But when you watch their lives, you see a very different picture. No wonder there was uh, uh, outpouring again from the, of the Catholics on this thing. They were worried. Have you ever met a really good Catholic person who loves God? Sure, they might be all caught up in the Eucharist, and sure, they might do things that are not biblical or believe on those things. But have you seen the devotion of a true Catholic who really believes and follows God through that? You know, and that is what Erasmus was trying to say. You're taking this, and you're creating this big upheaval, Luther. Don't do it. Now, remember, Erasmus was majorly informed on the contents of the Bible and the teachings of Jesus and the apostles and the early church fathers. Far more, in my opinion, than Luther could ever hope to be right? And he was a first-hand witness of these reformers and the followers that they had and the spirit that they embodied. And he was ardently faithful to God and his purposes. With that background, we have to take his assessment of the reformers and those that followed the reformers very seriously. We have to take his witness of what he says that was going on there and say, Let's take this seriously into account. As seriously as we would take the accounts of someone who lived at the time of Joseph Smith and said, you know, when I watched those Mormons, they were a bunch of scallywags and a bunch of pirates and a bunch of this and polygamists and all that stuff. We would gladly take a, a witness like that who was outside of it watching and what they said in their description of the Mormons. But when it comes to Erasmus' description of what the Protestants were like at the Reformation time, oh, no, 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 no. No, that's not, that's not reliable. It's not fair. We have to look at all the sources when we critique things. So are you willing to do this? Are you going to toss Erasmus away simply because he did not have a huge following or because he remained Catholic or because he may have been a homosexual, as we talked about last week with his love letters? Does that, is that the thing where you're able to toss him out because of that? You know, you find a reason, but you, and just like the LDS find a reason to toss, toss away the testimonies of people who critique the church, just like we all do to find our stuff. I'm not saying Erasmus and his assessment was completely correct. Not at all. But I am saying that all points of view play a role, and what he observed in the Ref Reformation was not all goodness, not holiness, and not purity. We paint it that way. In 1529, Erasmus wrote something called, quote, an epistle against those who falsely boast they are evangelicals, end quote. God, that's a book we need today. An epistle against those who falsely boast that they are evangelicals. Here he begins to complain of the doctrines and morals of the reformers. This is what he says, quote, you bitterly, you declaim bitterly against the luxury of priests, the ambition of bishops, the tyranny of the Roman pontiff and the babbling of sophists against our prayers, fasts, and masses. And you are not content to retrench the abuses that may be in these things, but must needs abolish them entirely. Look around on this, quote, evangelical generation, he says, and observe whether amongst them less indulgence is given to luxury or avarice than amongst those whom you so detest. Show me any one person who by that gospel, he says, has been reclaimed from drunkenness to sobriety, from fury and passion to meekness, from avarice to liberality, 
from reviling to well-speaking, from wantonness to modesty. I will show you a great many who have become worse through following it. The solemn prayers of the church are abolished, but now there are very many who never pray at all. I have never entered into their covenantals, but I have seen, sometimes seen them returning from their sermons, the countenances of all of them displaying rage and a wonderful ferocity as though they were animated by the evil spirit. Whoever beheld in their meetings any one of them shedding tears, smiting their breasts, or forgiving or grieving for their sins. Confession to the priests is abolished, but very few now confess to God. They have fled from Judaism that they may become Epicureans. That is a that is a dagger line at the end. Did Erasmus have a valid point? I mean, when the pendulum swings, it really swings full uh, wide, doesn't it? In many ways, what was happening between Catholicism and Protestantism, between Erasmus and Luther, perfectly illustrates what Hegel called the dialectic. I've covered this in the past, but it's very important to what we're talking about. And we're going to go to your questions in just a second. Let me explain the philosophy. For more than, a, let me just use about, let me just talk to you quickly about philosophy. For more than a millennia, philosophers from, they divided on who was right, who had the perfect philosophy, right? So we have Paramedes and we have Heraclitus, both opposite views. We have Socrates, we have Aristotle, Plato and Aristotle. We, we have Descartes and we have Kant. We have everybody saying, this is true, this is true, this is true, this is true, my way is the best. Well, in comes this guy named Hegel. And Hegel says, now, nah, let me tell you something. It doesn't work that way. Your way isn't true, and your way isn't true. This is what happens. Um, there's a historical process by which your way lends to the creation of their way, and those two work together to create a new way. And it was all done through this thing called the dialectic, which means conflict. So here's what he said. Someone comes up with a thesis, this is the way it is. This, my philosophy is true. Someone looks at that and says, here's the antithesis to that. And they fight with each other, the conflict. Together, they produce a new synthesis. That synthesis, according to Hegel, after time becomes the new thesis to which people will then provide a new antithesis. Those will fight until a new thesis or a synthesis is created. And so let's use church as an example. Church A says Jesus was all man. There it is. Church B says we hate that. Jesus was all God. And those two go to war. And they use the scripture to do it. And from that we come with a new synthesis. Jesus was all God and all man. And that becomes the new thesis statement and then someone says, Jesus was all God and all man. I'm not sure I like that. A new antithesis is created, a new a dialectic is created, and a new synthesis is created. And through that process, they keep going on and on and on. When Luther confronted Catholicism, we have a conflict, the dialectic, with Catholicism re representing historical thesis. We have Luther saying, no, here's antithesis. And between those two, we come up with a new synthesis. It's called Lutheranism. 
the Lutheran Church. It's a conglomeration between Luther's view and Catholicism. Those two created the Lutheran Church, which is an amalgamation of Catholicism and Lutheran's thought. If you look at the Lutherans, they baptize babies still. Many of their things, they, they, do, a, a com, they do a communion or a Eucharist type thing. All, they wear the same robes, very much the same. From there, we have tens of thousands of new thesis or new synthesis is out there today. From Luther, everybody has come in with their own ideas and they've all thrown into the mix and they've all said this way and there's conflict and that way, but it hasn't rotated into this grand synthesis. It's, it's gone from Lutheranism to 30,000 denominations that are out there and none of them can come to a consensus, okay? You may not like me. Why would you? You may not agree with my thoughts on doctrine or whatever. You may believe that my opinions are outside the pale of the Bible, but I'm telling you, humbly, uh, and in the cause of Christian peace, that in the face of where we are today, there is only one way now to approach Christianity, and that is the way it started, subjectively. It has to be approached that way. The dialectics are done with. We've gone through them all. The synthetic and the syncretist, all those different things are out there. There's no new thing under the sun, as Solomon said. We've got them out there. The only thing we're going to do now, if, if the church is going to survive, is to allow everyone to be able to pursue him in the way that they're seeing it and do it in love. I'm telling you, subjectivity is the way. So we preach, we teach Jesus. And if someone doesn't, that's their right. We let the Holy Spirit guide those who are his. And if someone is or isn't, that's what it is. And we teach the Bible to the best of our ability to each other. And we have our slants and we have our ideas, but we accept other people's views. And if they're, they're, the antagonism has to go. Interestingly enough, with Hegel's uh, dialectical model. It didn't end there. There were others who came along and proposed new philosophies, but the one that seemed, in my opinion, to come from that and, st and, and to solve the whole problem in philosophy was a Christian philosopher by the name of Soren Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard came in and said, I'm going to talk to you about something called existentialism. I'm going to talk to you about something that is completely based on the subjective and, and he took and he analyzed all the philosophies and said, listen, this is all subjectively understood and interpreted. And he's the one who fathered existentialism. In a sense, Christian subjectivity is nothing more than Christian existentialism. And Soren Kierkegaard was the father of that. Soren Kierkegaard was the father of Christian subjectivity. Not me or anybody else. He's the father of it. He came up with it when he realized, listen, we all are going to pursue God and we're all going to make those leaps of faith and we're going to see what we're going to, we're going to believe. Applying Kierkegaard's model of existentialism to faith, people can become free to love. His book on love is unbelievable because it's all, he reads the scriptures, he knows the scripture, he knows the apostles, he reads it and he sees it from a subjective point of view and he understands that other people will differ. Quickly returning to Erasmus, to his perceived moral failings of the reformers, Erasmus dreaded change of doctrine. 
in book one of his hyperapistas, he wrote bluntly to Luther and said, we are dealing with this. Would a stable mind depart from the opinion handed down by so many men famous for holiness and miracles, depart from the decisions of the church, and commit our souls to the faith of someone like you who has sprung up just now with a few followers, although the leading, although the leading men of your flock do not agree, agree either with you or among themselves? Indeed, though, do you not even agree with yourself? since in the same assertion you say one thing in the beginning and something else later on. He later wittingly, in a very witty statement, said, there's no pure interpretation of Scripture anywhere but Wittenberg. Wittenberg was where Luther uh, nailed his 95 Thesis to the uh, church door. And Erasmus says, hey, there's no true interpretation of Scripture except at Wittenberg, uh, pointing to Luther's arrogance. He also wrote a leader and said, you stipulate that we should not ask for or accept anything but Holy Scripture. But you do it in such a way as to require that we permit you to be its sole interpreter, renouncing all others, end quote. This guy, he, he is admirable. He said, Luther, I, 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 he agreed with Luther's criticisms of what the Catholic Church was doing, but he said, who makes you the one who gets to interpret scripture for everybody else and your followers don't even agree with you hence we have the denominations we have today he adds thus the victory will be yours if we allow you to be not the steward but the lord of holy scripture it says luther has to be erasmus was onto something there his point was you claim sola scriptura sola scriptura sola scriptura but you demand people adhere to your interpretation of Scripture alone. Unfortunately, this mindset has continued on today, and unless you see and interpret Scripture as those who are in power above you, you are wrong, you are the heretic, you're not a Christian, you're going to hell, etc., 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 and love is lost. Formula for thousands of denominations. Luther wrote, I mean, Erasmus was not in support of division. This is where I see his maturity. He said, I detest dissension because it goes both against the teachings of Christ and against the secret inclination of nature. I doubt that either side in the dispute can be suppressed without grave loss. Finally, uh, for anyone seeking for peace and unity, Erasmus was also accused by the Catholic monks, so he was getting it from both sides, which helped eliminate him. The Catholic monks were saying that Erasmus prepared the way and was responsible for Martin Luther. That Erasmus, they said, had laid the egg and Luther hatched it. So he was stuck in the middle. The Catholics weren't happy with him. The Protestants weren't happy with him. In response to that, Erasmus ever witty said, Luther has hatched a very different bird entirely. So uh, finally, attempt to avoid most theological baits debates, Erasmus fought ardently, remember his history in scripture, that humans are free to choose. It was something that he and Luther, Luther said, we are not free to choose. There's no free will, Luther said, and Erasmus stood nose to nose with him and said, that is not true according to scripture. And that's something else. Uh, Luther, Luther aggressively degree, um, disagreed, and that's when uh, Luther began to do what happens also today, the name-calling like Erasmus is 
a demon from hell, and Erasmus is a liar and a viper in the very mouth of Satan, Luther said of him in the end. Uh, Erasmus died suddenly from dysentery. According to his dear friend, his last words were, Dear God. Erasmus, like Kierkegaard after him, set an example of Christianity that Luther could have more seriously considered and avoided the millions of lives that were lost uh, in the pursuit of truth. It's not that Luther was all wrong. He did do a brave thing in, in, at Wittenberg. His criticisms were against the machine and in my estimation were pretty much legitimate. But dogma and doctrinal demands of denominations are the end result. Erasmus and Kierkegaard pointed out subjectivity of these scriptures is the end result, not the way that we have gone. Luther didn't offer true subjective religion. He only promised it. And uh, what was delivered was really just more of the same. Let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. And I want you to take a look one more time at this little short video clip. Because Christian laws are written on the hearts of believers. And believers are independently under the influence of God through the Holy Spirit. And because all beliefs are in the end between God and the individual, Christianity is entirely subjective, which leaves believers with the freedom to share Jesus and to love. Okay, we have an off-air question. Is it possible the LDS mainstream churches are camouflaging themselves as Christian churches? She is noticing Mormon teachings in some Christian churches in Florida. That would, be, that would surprise me, uh, and I guess that's possible. But, uh, uh, you know, the LDS, they, are, uh, they morph, and they change, and they adapt, and they, that's how they survive. And so there certainly has been an appeal for them to appear more Christian in the, uh, these last 20, 20 years. But the beautiful thing about that is, I think more and more LDS people are becoming Christian along the way, and I think this will turn on them. And I think that in the end, the kids are gonna rise up due to efforts of people to show online what the Mormon church is really about. I think more and more kids in the church are gonna say, look at no more of the Smith stuff, no more of the uh, looking in the hat, no more of this stuff, you know, let's just talk about Jesus. And I think uh, that it ultimately it will turn that way. I don't know, could be wrong. Uh, I, I met three different people today while I was out and about who were familiar with the show, and one came up and said, I got one, one word for you, evolution. And, uh, and so, uh, what is the Christian view of evolution, according to you, McCraney? Uh, well, uh, especially in schools, uh, this big debate, and so my question back to him was, well, what is the Christian view of English taught in schools? What's the Christian view of uh, PE taught in schools? What's the Christian view of math taught in schools? I don't know what the Christian view is of those things. Is there a Christian view? I don't think so. How could there be a Christian view of evolution, which is, in essence, a theory? There are supports that they use to support it. String theory is a theory 
There are supports that are there to support that too. They teach string theory. I don't hear Christians crying about string theory, but they cry about evolution theory. It's a science. Scientists, they use all sorts of pro, uh, approaches to figure out what proofs are there to support the theory. Okay? So if they're, if, they're, if they're in school and they're talking about science and they're using evolution or teaching it, I don't care. Let my child learn about evolution. I don't care. I care about what my child learns when they hear about God's, the word and what is said there. My child can decide how they're going to see it. Does my child have the right to say, I think God used evolution and I believe in Jesus? Absolutely. Can my child say, I think punctuated equilibrium is a great way to explain evolution now and, and that we don't understand everything? Yeah. Can my child say that Genesis is not a complete exhaustive account and be a Christian? Of course they can. Can a child believe that there's uh, evolutionary processes at work in, in creation and in different things? Of course they can. See, the problem is, is we as Christians have tried to make this avenue of science the demon that is going to destroy us. You can't destroy truth in Christ Jesus. You can't destroy the Holy Spirit. We aren't converted by science. We aren't converted by anti-science. We're converted by a knowledge that Jesus came, he shared the gospel, he gave his life. That happened at a time where evolution, we weren't even considering it. What people want to say, they have built empires on debating this. It's a side issue to keep us off track. If, if science is going to prove itself strong and it's going to prove itself failures in area. Religion will continue to prove itself strong and failures in area. But to me, I... It, I mean, you can say, well, that's just, that's just not responsible Christianity. Why? I believe the biblical account. Does the biblical account, can it include evolutionary processes? Of course it could. What's the big deal? I really want to know when Jesus died on the cross, he resurrected, he ascended. What the hell does that have to do with evolution? I really want to know. That's the good news, not evolution. So there's my... That's what he got for me. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, this is from Heather. She says, Hi, I have a huge fan of Heart of the Matter. I do not believe in the Mormon church. I'm looking for help in just how I need to leave. I also find myself struggling with my belief in God and Jesus. Parenthetical reference. I really don't know how to explain it. Looking for help and maybe some answers. Well, Heather, let me tell you, you're not alone. Um, when I came to understand the truth of Mormonism and many people I know who are very similar, uh, you, you experience a scorched earth. You experience a scorched heart. You give your all to an institution where you repeatedly hear and say, you know the church is true. Some people go on missions, you know, they marry in the temple, they do all these things and you really give it. And then you find out this institution that's pretty darn solid in the way they administer is false. You get pretty angry at being duped, and you're not going to buy into another religious dupification, if you know what I mean. So it's natural for you to wonder about the existence of Jesus and God and the story. And, what. and then also, we don't have the best example always coming from the Christian side of what Christianity is. So you look around and you might say, yeah, I'm not seeing anything there too. A lot of people go to atheism. A lot go to Eastern metaphysics. It's easier to to follow something uh, uh, in Eastern metaphysics maybe, to embrace something that's not so dogmatic. Um, but I would just suggest this. Don't believe me, Heather, and don't believe uh, pastors and bishops and missionaries and things. 
go to God? I mean, he says, listen, he's here for you. The honest heart that seeks him will find him. I know that is true. I went for a period where I didn't believe either. I became a nihilist and everything else, but uh, I did go to him honestly in the heart and said, I've got to know. And he does speak. He speaks. When you ask him, really speak to him, he will tell you. So ask him, Heather, to open up your eyes. That's the way I say it. Now, eyesight is, not, is a sense, but it's not a sensation. You just will begin to see the world differently when he reveals himself and, and ask him to reveal himself to you. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, but it's probably from that scorched earth that you are feeling this way. From Pat in Canada, uh, like the uh, sincerity on how you challenge orthodox positions, and, but simultaneously let people think for themselves. Thanks for your hard work on the Bible. Uh, I've been watching you for years because I did a program on the Drew Marshall show in uh, Canada years ago, and uh, uh, where Tal Bachman called in and made fun of me uh, for being a believer. But anyway, uh, this person, Pat C. in Canada, learned of uh, our ministry from there and has been watching ever since. You know, um, just a, a thought. Well, I think we have some calls coming through, but while we're waiting, the more I personally understand the score of Christianity, what it means to be a Christian, the picture is not pretty. We tend to think of it as being something that's really flowering and really great and good, and, but I don't think it's pretty. Um, individual believers can alter this picture anytime they want. They can make their lives prettier anytime they want. All they have to do is say, I'm going to please men more than I please God. The minute a believer is going along and things are getting really tough, all they have to do is say, I detour to please men, and they can cut off the misery and change the way the picture looks. When you do that, the pain stops, but as long as a person is bent on pleasing God, seeking God, trying to find God and follow God, the biblical picture that we're presented with is horrible. I've talked about it before. Jesus was born, and here's the model. His birth was celebrated. Kings came, right? Just like when you are born from above, you become a Christian, you're celebrated. Everyone is your friend. Uh, you're the newest member in the kingdom of God, and everyone is happy, and everyone really likes you, not only because you're a babe in Christ and you're a new Christian, but also because they can tell you how you should believe, and how they can guide you, and they feel like they have importance in your life. Jesus himself grew in wisdom and stature. That's what it says in Luke. He lived his life. He had a trade. He had friends in the community, presumably. Uh, we do the same as believers. We go on with our life. We've come to become a believer. We live our life. We're doing the things. We're letting God prepare us for what he's going to do. Then Jesus' time had come. That's how it kind of puts it in scripture. And our Lord entered into the ministry of his life. And we as Christians can decide to do that too, or we can just decide to, to please men. And at that point, he says to, to people, follow me. And yeah, there were sacrifices. He had to leave his home, the comforts of his friends, Galilee. The carpenter's son was now stepping out. And while he had his earthly ministry, uh, the Son of Man had no place to rest his head. It was difficult, but you know, the masses loved him. They flocked to him. John's apostle, John decreased, he increased. They had a lot of people following him, thousands out in the desert. Things were going good. Miracles were happening. Uh, lots of things going on. This is the king we've been looking for is the picture Jesus' life gives us, right? And it's the same with us to varying degrees. We follow him. We start to do some things for him. 
and people hail you. Yeah, we love that thing you're doing, that, that ministry to the poor. We love what you're doing, that book you wrote. We love this, we love that. And you get all that same kind of thing. As the masses grew, the masses do what they always do when Jesus was around. They start to make demands for their comfort. And so these masses, they probably wanted to be entertained. They didn't like the heaviness of his word. They wanted to elect a king that would protect them there on the earth. They wanted to be fed both food from that he would create and spiritual reassurances. And so Jesus had to start letting them know that he's not going to be their earthly king. Oh, he had to disappoint them a little bit. And then he had to let them know, listen, that bread you're eating, why don't you seek after the stuff that's eternal and won't fade away, that you won't need all the time? Oh, you know, they were starting to, they didn't really, I guess, like that. And then he started to talk to them about things that were hard to hear. It says in John 6, 6, Jesus says, listen, you got to eat my blood and drink, or drink my blood and eat my flesh. And John says in John 6, 66, by the way, is the reference. From that time, many of the disciples went back and walked no more with him. Now things in his life and ministry are starting to heat up and get difficult. Are we to expect anything different in your walk as a Christian than this? Didn't John need to decrease so Christ could increase? Is this not the lot every believer has? If so, why do we herald ministries and churches and pastors and and everything uh, that are the opposite of this model, that are big and we think they're great? That is not the biblical model. The biblical model is less and less and less What happened to our king once the masses started leaving him? Think about it. It was a catabasis to death. That's all it was. And first he lost the masses. Then he lost a key disciple who betrayed him. And then the rest scattered when he was at Gethsemane. They fled. The senior apostle denied him three times. Then he was taken by the most outwardly ardent religious people of the area probably of the world, and they mocked him, and they beat him, and they killed him, and he died alone on a cross outside the city gates where the trash was. Inside the city is where the parties were. Inside the city is where life was happening as we would see life. Where was the king of our our king taken? Are any true followers to expect anything different in your life? Now, this is hard schnitt as my girls will say. It is difficult because no one wants that. But that is the biblical model of what happens to somebody whom God is purging to bring forth more fruit of love. Not of money, not of looks, not of empires, of love. I think this is why Jesus said, there are few be there that find it. This path to being a child of God. I know there's a paradox in me because I know I do teach and we're almost done. Total reconciliation. I believe that God is going to reconcile every human being to himself in the end. But please understand, as committed as I am to that, don't get me wrong, I am just as committed to the fact that God has his children. They are his. And like his only begotten son who came before them, those children will suffer a very similar model as his son. Despised, rejected by the most religious men, but who will through suffering become joint heirs with him. Then, and you know who you are, they, you know who you are, 
are truly not of this world. We, I, yes, we live in it, and yes, we participate, but truly not of it. And that's the message that we have for you tonight. Going to come back. I'm sorry, uh, David from California. He says, loves the show, appreciates it. Thanks, David. Well, join us next week. We're going to continue on. We're going to move on now into Luther, Sola Scriptura. We'll go to Tyndale, and we're going to look at what has happened with all that. And then we're going to look at, a, uh, in the, in next week, the difference between the orthodoxy and the modernist battle and what happened there and how that lends to what we're talking about here on the show. Join us next week here on Heart of the Matter. Thank you. Thank you. I'm on a ride Going nowhere I am an existential cowboy On the wind And I won't become This man's awake, a storm's arising, the dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know. And I can feel the light-filled monkeys start.